0: The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our way of leading. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God commanded man and woman and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth to be fruitful and multiply in ideas and influence, and to cultivate the garden, making sense of the earth around them, subduing and replenishing it for his glory. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because this world needs you right now. No matter who you are or where you find yourself, it's my deep prayer that as you listen, meditate, become courageous to act, and go deeper in your walk with God, some of you just at the beginning of that journey, that you will be changed back into the original image and likeness in which you were created. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and share. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So tonight I'm going to be speaking on leading in the time of bewilderment. Leading in the time of bewilderment. This will be a surprising text to us, a very familiar text, but as always, my prayer is is that God will use the familiar to draw us out into the unfamiliar, to draw us out into deeper waters, and I believe that that is the case with our teaching this evening We live in bewildering times, and it feels as though life has become harder than it used to be. Life is busy. Life is expensive. And I know that any one of you, when you step out in the mornings until the time you get home at night, the day feels like a race. Sometimes the day feels like a delicate balance. Sometimes the day feels like a war. It just depends on... A metaphor that you want to use. And the thing is, is that by the time you reach the end of the day, the day is not over, right? Because you just are starting a new shift. You leave the professional day and then you move into the, the home shift. And so whatever it was that you had to put in at the office or put in at school or put in at the market where or put in at the church, wherever you spend your days, by the time you get home to the home front, you have to put in the same or even more, am I right? And so we find ourselves in bewildering times. And the bewilderment is not just the big stuff. It's not just that things are expensive, that the cost of living is going up. It's not just the fact that the environment is in trouble and everyone's talking about climate emergency. It's not even the corruption of the state. It's not the impending wars, the nearby one or the faraway ones. It's not even the traffic, you know. So the bewilderment comes not only from the big things, but it comes from the little things as well, like your interpersonal relationships and how you feel as though you are on the inside. How are you doing? How are you doing? So these are the bewilderments that we go through on a daily basis. And leading in such times is difficult. So it's not only difficult going through bewildering times or living through bewildering times, it's difficult leading in bewildering times. The people whom you are leading are also bewildered. They're distracted by many things. They're tired, they're exhausted. Some of them are breaking, some of them are already past the breaking point and they're broken. Some of them are leading as though they're traumatized or they're following as though they're traumatized. Some of them are suffering silently. Some of them are sad. Some of them are depressed. Some of them are oppressed. Some of them are suppressed. And maybe even you as a leader, in your role as a leader, maybe you even feel some of this as well. And so in the text that we are going to look at this evening we find ourselves in a bewildering situation the children of israel have been exiled into babylon for their disobedience to god's word somehow they've lost their way over the years and they find themselves living in a strange land they find themselves living with strange people they find themselves living under strange gods. It's a time of rejection. It's a time of survival. And it's a time when the people of God have to cling to the hope of restoration. Psalm 137 tells us that they hang their harps in the willows and cry. And they ask, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? And tonight we would ask Well, how how can they lead in such a context? And in our text this evening, Xerxes is king. And because his former wife disobeyed him, she's also been exiled. And so the king's advisors have counseled him to gather the most beautiful virgins in the land, gather them together, and that the one who pleases him most should become queen. And so our story is about a young Jewish orphan named Myrtle, or as her Hebrew name is known, Hadassah. But in the story, she goes by the Babylonian name that she's been given, Ishtar. Or in the English, we call her Esther. And now Esther is the favored candidate And we know the story, we know that soon Esther moves into the palace. And so it's this wonderful story, this exciting story, this romantic story. And it seems as though everything's going to end happily ever after. But there's a hitch, there's a problem, there's a glitch. There's an enemy of the people of God, an enemy of the Jewish nation, this nation that's been scattered across the Babylonian empire from Egypt to India And this enemy has plotted to totally destroy the people of god his name is haman and he's orchestrated a royal edict that cannot be repealed and so opens our text this evening i'm reading from esther chapter 3 verse 15. the bible says the couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Shushan. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was bewildered. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting Father, we come before you once more, and we thank you, Lord, that we are accepted in the beloved. Thank you for giving us the School of Ministry and Leadership This weekly opportunity that we have to worship you with our minds. This weekly opportunity we have to search the scrolls, Lord, that testify of you. And Lord Jesus, even as we come to you this evening, we come seeking only you. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence this evening. I ask, Lord, that you teach your people and that you meet your people at their point of need. These are the people, Lord, who you predestined to the adoption of sonship before even the creation of the worlds. And you've written a story for them, Lord, and you have a purpose for them, and you have a destination for them. And so my prayer, Lord, is that there would be nothing that would Delay them on their journey. There is nothing that would hinder them from reaching the destination that you have for them. May they believe, Lord, that your plans for them are always superior to the plans that they have for themselves. And may they, by faith, launch themselves, Lord, into your plans. Though they may not know what to do, though they may not know how to do it, May they simply lean on you, Lord, and trust you and trust your leadership to make them better leaders. Lord Jesus, we pray and we spend this hour under your name. In the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, we've prayed. Amen and thank you. So tonight we are looking at the story of Esther. We're going to take it from a different perspective. And for those of us, I mean, we know the story. We know the story of Esther very, very well. But there's something I pray that we will see that's new this evening as we speak about leading and how we learn, how we adjust ourselves to be able to lead in a time of bewilderment. Now, Bible scholars, when they look at the story of Esther, they believe that this was a book that was written by Mordecai. Mordecai was Esther's cousin. He was her spiritual guide. And by the end of the story, we see that Mordecai has been elevated to a very high-ranking position in Babylon. And Mordecai's reasons for writing this book was as a memorial to future generations. And so Mordecai writes this book in a moment of time. And Mordecai writes this book of a moment in time. And the Hebrew word eighth is the word for time. And eighth normally signifies the time of the occurrence of some event. So it's a particular time. And we know that there is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down, and a time to build. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So there's a time for everything. And in our story this evening, for the people of God, this was a particular time. This was the time of bewilderment. This edict has gone out that cannot be repealed, saying that they are to be completely destroyed. And so Esther and her cousin Mordecai find themselves in this moment of bewilderment. And so Mordecai sends word to Esther, Esther who's now Queen Esther, sitting up in the palace. And he sends word to her that she has to do something. That she has to go into the king and do something. She has to use her position as queen to influence the situation. She has to steward her queenship for this situation. She has to lead in this situation. And the word that Esther sends back to Mordecai, Esther is very polite and she basically lets Mordecai know that she, she gets what he's saying but he doesn't quite understand how things work up there in the palace. And so Esther sends this message and she says, listen, cuz, it's all very well and good that you are out there on the streets with the people. I know that you're mobilizing. I know that you're representing. It's good that you are lying in sackcloth and ashes. I get it, I know. But up here in the palace, we have protocols. We have rules and we have procedures. We have policies. We have laws. And I can't just go up to the king or else the law says that I can be killed. Besides, cuz, I mean, you seem to think that I have some kind of access just because I'm the wife of the king. But in fact, let me tell you that he hasn't even called me in over a month. So, I don't really know where I stand, and I don't really know what you think I can do. She says, I, I know that you're bewildered. I'm bewildered too, but I'm not really sure what can be done. So, Mordecai sends a message back. And Mordecai says, Girl, listen. <laughs> listen to me for a minute. He says, I know. I know that you've gone up to the big house and I know that you've had to learn their ways. I know that you've had to assimilate into their world. I know that it's been tough and I know that you've done pretty good for yourself. But you shouldn't get it twisted. And don't think that just because they call you ma'am and that they give you nice clothes and that you get your hair done and your nails done and that you eat good and that you speak good. Don't think that any of that can protect you. Mordecai says, these aren't normal times. This is a time of bewilderment. And you need to be like the sons of Issachar and discern the times. You need to know what Israel must do. He says, this isn't a time to keep quiet. He says, even if you do, the rocks will cry out. Do you even know why God has made you a leader? for such a time as this. And so I like Esther's response. Esther gets this message, not maybe the message she was expecting to get from her big cousin, but she listens. And then she sends word back. And she says, you know what, cuz, you're right. She says, it's hard, but you're right. It's a hard saying, but you are right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to fast, we're going to pray, and I will go in and break the laws of the land. I will go in and break the laws of man because I'm going to trust the laws of God. And if I perish, I perish. And if I perish, I Perish. But I like how it's actually rendered in the French instead. The French translation says, If I must die, I will die. So Esther says, This is what we're going to do. We'll fast, we'll pray, and if I must die, I will die. And I like that phrasing so much because it reminds us that, in fact, we must die. In the time of bewilderment, as leaders, we must die. Jesus tells us as much in John chapter 12, verse 23 down to 28. Jesus replied, the hour has come. So still speaking about eighth, still speaking about the time of an occurrence of an event. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verily, verily, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world, in other words, in the palace, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So there's an exchange. There's an exchange for life in the palace versus the eternal life. Jesus continues and he says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And we see that Esther was serving the Lord Jesus, even though she hadn't met him, even though she didn't know who he was. But of course, we know that by her service, by her saving the Jewish nation, this was the channel through which the Messiah was going to come. Jesus continues in the verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Save me from the time of bewilderment? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. And then Jesus ends, Father, Glorify your name, hallelujah. And know oh, that we would be leaders who would say, Father, glorify your name. In the time of bewilderment, Lord, glorify your name. And the story of Esther is sometimes difficult for us because we read it like it's a fairy tale. We read it and we think that it's just a Bible story. So it's a great story, but maybe it's not completely true. Maybe it's not real. Maybe it's just moralistic or a parable, but it can't be true. And yet when we look at the book of Esther, when we take a historical perspective, so not even a spiritual perspective, when we take a historical perspective and we look at the book of Esther, we learn that it is in fact one of the most corroborated books by non-biblical sources. What I mean by that is that archaeologists have actually dug up the ancient city of Persopolis, which was the capital city of the Persian Empire, and they found tablets that actually mention the name of one of the Prime Ministers. And this Prime Minister's name was Mardukha. And if we translate Mardukha from the Persian, we see that it sounds very similar to who we call Mordecai. And so if we have this Persian evidence, these tablets that have been etched with the name of this high-ranking official named Mardukah, or Mordecai, as a witness that this was a real person who walked the face of the earth. If history bears this witness of Mordecai's existence, then we can also believe that his cousin Esther was a real person too. So we have physical, archaeological, historical evidence that would support at least the existence of these people in Babylon. But setting that aside, maybe you're not too concerned about the physical evidence. Maybe you just look at the story of Esther, and you think, well, Esther was just lucky. Esther had favor. Esther was beautiful. Esther had the right temperament to pull this kind of thing off. If it were me, I could never. And so this story is a it's a nice story but it doesn't really apply to my situation. And yet the thing about Esther's story, about the story, the narrative arc of the book of Esther is that it actually hides a lot of misery. We look at the story and as I said, we think of it as a romance, you know, beautiful orphan becomes queen of the most powerful empire on the earth. That's a romance story. I mean, it's what all of the Disney stories are made of, right? We could say this is a story of action, where there's a bad guy, but in the end, the good guys win because we know what happens to Haman, right? And yet, if we take our time to go through this story closely, we can actually see that this is not so this is not only this is not only a, a story of victory or success or romance or good guys versus bad guys the story hides a lot of misery we have esther who was an orphan who would have had to deal with the pain of being orphaned of losing both her mother and her father at a young age, especially while living as a migrant or a refugee in a strange land. And I know that some of us know what loss is. What about the pressure that Esther would have had to experience going through these 12 months of training simply to please a man? I mean, what if, what if the king didn't like her? What if she didn't please the king when she went into him? Esther would have been relegated to a life of living in a harem with absolutely no future. And I know that some of us know what the fear of rejection is, the fear of not being accepted. And then after Esther has become king, we see that her husband has all but abandoned her. And we know that marriages sometimes have their moments. The king has not called Esther into his presence for 30 days. And maybe she was thinking, well, is he mad at me? Is he bored with me? Did I do something wrong? Is he just busy with work? Am I ever going to see my husband again? Is he going to love me like he used to? And so we know that relationships sometimes go off. And then Esther was confronted with this reality that all of this time she had been keeping a secret from her husband. And this was the moment of the big reveal. And that would have made her nervous and that would have made her scared. And I know that some of us are harboring secrets that if anyone found out. So you see, the story of Esther is not just a beauty contest. Esther had to come to an incredible place of courage. When this time of being forced to lead in bewilderment came upon her. But despite these challenges, there's good news. There's good news for you and I, because Esther knew she was able to discern in the moment of bewilderment that the situation called for a kind of courage that had to be supernatural. There's no way that this courage could have come from her own resources regardless of how resilient she had had to learn to be, regardless of how favored she had been before. But we see in this moment of bewilderment that Esther was willing. Esther was willing to reach for that supernatural courage. Esther was willing to reach for the one who is the source. And that same one is available to us when we are willing and we are obedient. So if we ask ourselves, how must you lead in the time of bewilderment? How must you lead in the time of bewilderment? Esther gives us three clues. The first clue is is that you have to understand that the obvious solutions, those that can be seen, are not the solutions that are going to work. Esther chapter four, verse four. The Bible says, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And so in the situation, when when Esther hears the news and she hears the situation about Mordecai and she hears that he's on the ground wailing, covered in ashes, wearing sackcloth at the gate of the city because he can't come any closer because of the laws of the land that prevent those in sackcloth and ashes from getting any closer to the palace. Esther's response was the physical response. She said, the guy has no clothes on. Let's cover him up. Let's cover up the situation. Let's cover up the problem." We don't know what the root of the problem is, but let us at least give it the appearance of the semblance of a solution. Let us give it the semblance that it is something that can be fixed, something that can be covered, something that is obvious, something that can be seen. That outwardly, we can make things look all right. While while we try to figure out and come up with a solution, but let's put this stopgap measure into place until we can find out what to do. But that solution doesn't work in the time of bewilderment. What will work in the time of bewilderment is something that's much more radical than the outward, than the covering, than the obvious solutions than the visible solutions, than those solutions that can be seen. The second point that Esther makes is that in the time of bewilderment, how do you lead in the time of bewilderment? You don't lead silently. In the time of bewilderment, silence is not the answer. We saw already that there is a time to be silent. But in the time of bewilderment, that is not it. Bewilderment is a time of deep and utter confusion. In the beginning, when the earth was in bewilderment, when it was formless and void, and when darkness covered the deep, God spoke into that chaos. He spoke into that perplexity, and he gave it shape. He gave it light, and he gave it order. And having made us in his image and likeness, you also have been given dominion to speak into bewildering situations. So speak. Speak his truth. Speak his power. Speak to make a way where there seems to be no way. Speak to point out error. But in the time of bewilderment, as a leader, you cannot lead silently. You can never keep quiet in the time of bewilderment because the time of bewilderment is a time when the principalities are reigning and you can never keep quiet against the principalities. And this leads to the third point that Esther shows us, that in the time of bewilderment, the weapons of your warfare are not carnal. This is what Paul explains to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. He says, "For though we live in the world, though we live in the palace, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God." And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And in the story, we see that Mordecai and Esther knew that they weren't only fighting against Haman's hatred. They understood that they weren't only fighting against the laws of Babylon. And they perceived that they weren't even fighting against time. They weren't even racing against time for that day of destruction that was already rolling towards them. They understood, they discerned that they were fighting against satanic forces. And how do we know that this was their conclusion? Because when you actually read Esther's story, and it's really short, I would recommend that tonight before you sleep, you read the book of Esther, put away Netflix for the evening, and just... Read this book, it's a a great story. When you read the story and you read the text where Haman is describing what he wants to do, it says that the order was given to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. This should sound familiar to us. That threefold destruction should sound familiar to us. But Where have we heard it before? Well, Jesus himself tells us. He tells us in John's Gospel. He says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So that threefold level of destruction is always satanic. And so Jesus warns us and he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you abundant life. And so in this moment, when you have to lead in the moment of bewilderment, as a child of God, you have to fight with the weapons that Jesus gave you. You have to fight for that abundant life. And so you're fighting with the name of Jesus. You're fighting with the blood of Jesus. And you're fighting with your faith in Jesus to stand against the principalities and the powers, to stand against the destruction, the killing, and the annihilation, to stand against the thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now we understand why these moments are so bewildering, because we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against the man, Haman. We're wrestling against the spirit of Agag. When you read the text, it tells us that Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag, the same man who Saul had been ordered to kill because the Lord knew that if this man's descendants were not totally wiped off the face of the earth, that the principalities, the forces would use, would, would preserve that satanic spirit over the generations and it would rise up again. And in fact, if you take a historical perspective, you can can trace the arc where, in history, every now and then, the spirit will rise up, seeking to kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews. That anti-Semitic spirit, it's a Satanic spirit, it's the spirit of Agag. And so we have to wrestle Not against the flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, the forces of darkness that rule this age. Now, the story of Esther also reveals something else to us, not just about these spirits, not just about the nature of the bewilderment, the nature of the time, the nature of the battle. The story of Esther also reveals to us something about God's nature. The book of Esther is one of only two books in the Bible where God is never mentioned by name in the entire story, which is fascinating. Again, there are some Bible scholars who actually question whether the book of Esther should be part of the canon at all? Should the book of Esther even appear in the Bible? Because God's not named in it, so how do we actually know that this is a biblical story? Though his name is not mentioned, his hand appears throughout. And this is important for us to catch because it reveals to us that in the bewildering times of life, Though God may be unnamed, he's never unseen. You can see his hand if you know what you're looking for. And as children of God leading in a time of bewilderment, you have to believe in providence. So the silent movement of God through a situation. You have to believe in providence and not coincidence, The children of the world believe in coincidence. They believe in luck. They believe in serendipity. They believe in happenstance. But as a child of God, don't use that language. If you use that language, it will confuse you into believing in those concepts. Don't believe just simply in the randomness of the universe. Believe in the guiding, silent, invisible hand of God. Believe in God's orchestration in your life to turn around bewilderment for your good. And that's what the scripture says, right? That all things work together for the good. But we always have to quote that scripture in its entirety. You hear unbelievers quoting that scripture. All things work together for the good. But there's not a full stop there. The scripture continues, and it's a conditional statement. The fullness of that scripture says, all things work together for the good of them that, one, love the Lord, and two, are called according to his purposes. And so the question that I would ask you this evening is, is, do you love the Lord? Are you sure? And are you called according to his purposes? And if you are, are you moving in his purposes? If you fulfill the conditions, then you can be assured that his hand will turn the bewilderment around. And so as I'm closing this evening, we started off by noting that we live in bewildering times And in the time of bewilderment, as leaders under Christ, we should desire to be used by God to advance his kingdom purposes, just as Esther did in that moment. And what the story tells me this evening is that you should desire to go as far as you can to get a position of influence in the world, just as Esther did. It's safe for us to say that Esther didn't go through her 12 months of training. She didn't go through her beauty regime just to be listed amongst the most beautiful women in the land. She didn't go through all of that preparation just to be amongst the ones whom the king had tried. We have to imagine that Esther was going for the crown. Esther was going for the crown and we know that Paul has told us already that we are to run for the crown. That in a race, all the runners run so as to win the prize. And they do it for a corruptible crown, but we do it for an eternal crown. And that we are to run as though we want the prize and we are to lead as though we want the prize and we are to run we are to lead keeping our eyes up keeping our eyes ahead fixing our eyes on jesus the author and finisher of our faith fixing our eyes on jesus from whence cometh our help fixing our eyes on jesus who says he will not leave us alone in the bewilderment, that in fire and flood, he is there. That in the midst of the storm, he'll call you out into the deep, he is there. And the only question for you as a leader in this moment of bewilderment is, is, are you going to trust Jesus in the time of bewilderment? If you have to perish, will you perish? If you must die, will you die? Will you die to self? Will you die so that the seed can produce much fruit? Will you be willing to exchange your life in the palace for an eternal life? Will you say, Father, glorify your name? Even though I'm in this bewildering situation and I'm not really sure what to do. Father, glorify your name. Even though I'm a little bit afraid and I'm not even sure of the degree of courage that I have for this situation, Father, glorify your name. Because Esther shows us that God will promote you. God will promote you into a position of influence. God will promote you into a position of influence in a hostile environment, in a foreign land. God will promote you into a position of influence in a hostile environment in a time of bewilderment. But will you be willing? So if we have anything to say as a takeaway message, it's that the leading in the time of bewilderment is about willingness. It's about being willing and it's about being obedient. Isaiah tells us that the one who is willing and obedient will eat the good of the land and so if you are willing if you must perish if you must die if you are willing and if you are obedient the one who saves will always save you hallelujah